Я спою о стране, Где когда-то родился, От которой судьба Отклонила мой путь. Вспоминая о ней, Я не раз прослезился, Но я уж никто Мне не сможет What you were hearing there, comrade listeners, was no ordinary record. It was bone music, or as the Russians refer to it, music on the ribs. And if you were to hold that record up to the light, you'd see that it was once an X-ray of someone's hands or ribs or perhaps even a skull. Now, the story of how these records came into being in the USSR during the Cold War is a truly remarkable one. And to tell all, I'm now joined by Stephen Coates. Stephen is a composer, writer, music producer, and the world's authority on this subject, as is evidenced yeah. by his new book titled Bone Music. Stephen, welcome to our little wireless program, and congratulations. Well, listen, thanks for inviting me and thanks for the congratulations. I was, I was just thinking then when you said that, it's quite nice to be known as the world expert in something. I never thought that would happen. Well, you, so. you bloody well are, so you've got, you got a cop at sweet. When I was a kid, the song Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley changed the world for me and in a funny sort yeah. of way, it did for you. Tell us how you first stumbled across one of these records starring Bill Haley. Well, you mentioned it then. So I'm a musician by trade and I've been playing in Russia, well, until the conflict, actually, you know, for many years, actually every year. And almost 10 years ago now, um, I was playing there, doing a gig in St. Petersburg. And our habit was the day after the show, particularly my habit, was to uh, persuade some of our Russian friends to take us to the local flea market, you know, just to buy some strange things. Um, and one time we went to the huge flea market in St. Petersburg, Leningrad as it was of course, and I came across this strange record on a stall full of strange things but uh, my Russian friends didn't know what it was and the man whose stall it was, interestingly, was very negative about it, dismissive about it, um, maybe because it wanted to sell me something more expensive, but uh, he sort of flapped me away. But I persisted because I collect uh, records and um, I bought it and I brought it back to the UK. And when I tried to play it, first of all, it was 78 RPM. It was single-sided and flexible, like a flexi-disc, old-school flexi-disc. Um, and the music on it was Bill Haley's 1957 Rock Around the Clock. And when you held it aloft, it revealed the image of two bony hands. That's right. It's an extraordinary image, um, almost like a kind of DJ image in a funny sort of way. And that was a sort of signal moment, I think, for me, because I think I realised I had to find out who made it and why they made it and how they made it, you know, technically how they made it. And those three questions sort of drove me over the, le over the next uh, few years to try and discover what was going on. It became more than a record. It was more like a portal, unquote. Now, to really understand the whole story, we need to go uh, back to the Soviet during the Cold War. All kinds of music were banned. Tell us why. 
Well, it was mainly ideological reasons. So all kinds of culture was banned, you know, really in a way from the mid-20s onwards. But by the time we got to the late 40s and early 50s, a huge amount of music was banned. After the Second World War, when we and the, the Soviets were on the same team, um, and in fact, during the Second World War, you could hear American and British music in Moscow. You could go to the cinema and see American films with jazzy soundtracks. Uh, that turned young people in particular onto that kind of music. But when the Cold War started, you know, the products of our culture became the products of the enemy. So jazz, rock and roll became forbidden, along with lots of other types of you know, literature and all sorts of other stuff. But it wasn't only our culture, it was their own culture. I remember smuggling in uh, LPs of émigré Soviet artists, you know, Russians who'd left the country and were living, say, in the US. They were hotly desired by friends in Moscow. I think you've put your finger on something there which is very important for me in this story. I mean, the story is called Bone Music for obvious reasons because of the X-ray records, but also there's something about the essence of, you know, a, a, a country's culture. And it's understandable in a way, right, Philip, that, the, that jazz and rock and roll would be forbidden because it was an ideological war, you know, the Iron Curtain. But... The tragedy was that these emigre singers that you talk about, these were Russians who lived abroad, their music became forbidden because they became forbidden. Not really necessarily to do with its content. But the other thing which was really very strange for me was that music which was made in certain styles, emigre styles, so-called gypsy tango, Russian tango, these very flamboyant, wonderful actually, uh, uh, sounds... Those rhythms, those sounds became forbidden because the authorities feared that they would create the wrong kind of emotion, the wrong kind of feelings, in particular in young people. So there's two reasons for forbidding emigre music. Uh, but also, you know, all sorts of rhythms became forbidden. The foxtrot became forbidden, the samba, you know, the mambo. Instruments became forbidden, the saxophone became forbidden. And of course, the other big thing which we talk about is that there was no way to be what we would call a singer-songwriter in the USSR. To be uh, have your music recorded, you had to be a member of the composers' union, and to have your lyrics recorded, you had to be a member of the writers' union. So you needed the approval of the censor to be able to make art, and certainly any art which was going to be recorded. So there's a huge tradition in um, in Russia of what so-called blatnaya music, which is like rough urban folk songs of real life you know songs that were sung in the kitchens secretly in the uh, in the courtyards behind the building songs of the gulags well they told the real story of life there and of course there was no way that that kind of music was going to get recorded of course um, it was okay if stalin liked it Exactly. What what do dictators like? They like big, pompous, four-to-the-floor stuff, you know, massed choirs. They quite often like com comedy songs as well. Um, and, you know, that's, I think that's true to this day. You can't imagine Kim Il-jong listening to, uh, you know, John Coltrane, can you? You know, you know that he doesn't do that. Jazz has always been a threat to the dictatorial mind because there's something about freedom and individual expression in it. There was also tons of worthy stuff on the wireless, wasn't there? You talk about a, a 1946 sports song called You Should Be Healthy and Take Care of Yourself that was <laughs> destined for stardom. 
you know, uh, if you're a young person, you know, it's not really going to get you going that, is it? It sounds like the sort of thing that older people want young people to listen to. So, that you know, that didn't really work. Of course, there was some great uh, Russian music made. There's some great, you know, official classical music made. We know that. And even some of the Russian pop songs that, that you know, by official singers were beautiful, actually. But the point was is that the, most of the music that young people in particular wanted to listen to or people like your friend, um, you know, who loved the emigre music, they were prevented from doing that. And this underground culture of making records on x-rays grew out of that hunger, you know, that passion for that kind of forbidden music. Given that jazz was uh, forbidden, I suddenly have a need to, uh, to hear a little Louis Armstrong. <laughs> Now, interestingly, you think the X-ray record might not have been born in Russia, but in Hungary. How's that? So when I um, started to dig deep into this stuff, I was trying to find out, if you like, who came up with the idea, who developed this technique of using X-rays and these special recording machines called recording lids to make these records. Uh, and somebody mentioned to me that... Um, in an archive in Budapest, there were some records made on X-ray. So I went to Budapest several times, actually, and after many months of writing to people and asking them if I could see the archives, um, I was in the National Library there, and they brought a box up, and they opened it up, and it was full of beautiful records on, made on X-rays, and they were made in the 1930s. Uh, and further digging, you know, f identified one particular person, Istvan Mokoy, who was a sound engineer, actually. And he, I think he developed the technique because he certainly wrote about it. And in Hungary, it was a collective, a community of people who not, weren't recording because the music that they wanted to play was, was forbidden. It was more that actually they were just what we call archivists. You know, they were in love with the technology of radio and being able to record. So they developed the, I think, the skills there. Now, how it got to the Soviet Union, maybe through the prison camps, you know, or maybe it's one of these things that arises, you know, simultaneously in different places. You talk about the Golden Dog Gang. Mm. Well, the Golden Dog Gang was Ruslan Bogoslovsky and Boris Taikin. And they started up in 1946 in Leningrad. They were both music fans. Uh, and somebody that they knew had opened a business and he'd got a smuggled recording lathe, something that had probably been pulled out like a war trophy, booty from the Second World War. And it's a machine that you can make individual records on. Uh, and they used to go to his shop because he started to use his machine to copy forbidden tunes. Uh, and Bogoslovsky was such a, such a great uh, uh, technologist, if you like, that he, he made secret observations of this guy's machine and he built his own. Uh, and they started working out of sight of the authorities in Datchers. You probably know that word. Uh, that, for anybody who doesn't know, that means like country cottages, which is a common thing in, in Russia. Uh, and they started to copy the music which they loved and give it to their friends. So just in the way that we might, you know, make a mixtape in the old days or share a playlist now. But very quickly it became apparent that um, there was a huge desire for this stuff. So they became the world's first underground X-ray bootleg record company. Yeah. 
My guest is Stephen Coates, composer, writer, music producer, and Stephen, lots and lots of listeners will want to do their own uh, X-ray or bone recording. So can you quickly describe the procedure and the listeners will take notes? So you use something called a recording lathe, as I mentioned. Now, what is that? That looks like a big, heavy-duty record deck. But instead of a needle which you drop into the groove of a record, it's got a cutting head and you get a flat surface, X-ray in this case, but it can be many different types of surfaces. Uh, And you feed audio music into it rather than it reading audio and music out. Uh, And it scratches a groove onto the surface of the spinning disc. And so you can make a record one at a time in real time. That's how you do it. Now, you can record onto all sorts of things. I've got a friend who made a record on a pizza base. But actually, x-rays in the old days in particular just <laughs> happened to be very... <laughs> so funny. <laughs> the music was a bit cheesy. Stop it. <laughs> actually, I've got a friend who's made a, made a record on a hi-hat symbol as well, but uh, that didn't sound so good. Um, so that's it. You need a recording lathe, you need some x-rays, preferably ones from the old days because they're much thicker and softer. Uh, and you need a forbidden tune to copy or any, anything. You can copy anything and, if, and you can record a live performance straight to an x-ray. We love to do that. Now... Where did all the x-rays come from? Were were they just doing lots and lots of x-rays in the Soviet? They were. I mean, I think, I'm not sure about in Australia, but I think it happened here too, was that there was a big uh, push to test everybody for TB in particular. So there was, certainly in Soviet Union, everybody got tested. So there was a huge amounts of chest x-rays were made, but also other types of x-rays. Now, in the old days, uh, because of the composition of the x-ray, they were flammable. In fact, I've been told, I've never seen this, but I'm, I've been told that they can kind of instantaneously combust spontaneously. As does old silver nitrate motion film. Ah, right. Well, there we go. So it would be a silver nitrate substance which can burst into flames. So... There'd been a couple of big conflagrations in Soviet hospitals. So the authorities said to the people who work there, after a year, you've got to get rid of the x-rays. And now that's an annoying job. um, But if you've got people like the Golden Dog Gang who use this stuff to make their product, uh, people like them could turn up at night, you know, after dark, and for a few rubles or a couple of bottles of vodka, they could make a trade get a whole stack of blank media, as we would call it, and the person who works in the hospital would go away, you know, fulfil their job and got to pay for doing it, you know. Stephen, there's something so poignant about the idea of forbidden music being played on the, well, on the broken bones of the people. It's metaphoric. I think it is, and I think that's what's so touching for us in particular because these are images of pain and damage and, you know, they are impressed with the sounds of pleasure, you know, and as I like to say, they're they're, they're photographs of the interior of Soviet citizens overlaid with music which they secretly loved. And there's something very powerful, I think, for us about that. And in particular, I think it reminds us of a time possibly when, you know, one song could matter so much that you'd you would ri- take risks to make it, you would take risks to buy and sell it, and you'd even take risks to play it. So I think it's a testament to human endeavour. Was it an overtly political act in all cases or 
just people who like music. They were none of the people that I met and the bootleggers in particular were political. They didn't want to bring down the state, although they were accused of that, and they didn't want to pollute young minds, although they were accused of that. They were mainly music lovers at the beginning, and then also anti-establishment. I think that's important. You know, They didn't want to be told what to do, what they could listen to. Um, and of course, as time went on, they became entrepreneurial because there was some money to be made from it. It wasn't a huge you know, contraband business. But I think it was driven by anti-establishment attitude and, and a love of music at the beginning. I suppose the nearest thing that we might have now is something like, you know, computer hackers, these kids who, you know, take a delight in doing mischievous things for the sake of it, you know, rattling the cages of the authorities and of the older generation. Now, we started off with uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, but the artist featured more than any other on the record was uh, Pyotr Leschenko, a Russian emigre. Tell us about him. Yeah, Leschenko's story is a tragedy. Um, he was actually Ukrainian and was accused by the Soviet authorities of being a white Russian, meaning a kind of aristocrat. He wasn't actually. He came from a farming background, but he had this very beautiful voice. And before the war, um, when he started to perform, he became much beloved by Russian speakers in USSR and the Ukraine and other places. But he lived in the West. Um, he had a cabaret in Bucharest. And uh, as the censorship tightened, his music became forbidden. Now, this is somebody, as you said, his music appears more on X-Ray than anybody else's. Why? Because he was so well-loved. You know, I spoke to people, old men, you know, now in Russia, who, who said that his voice took them somewhere. It took them out of this world that they'd grown up to a different kind of place. Um, but of course, then they couldn't listen to it anymore. You know, what does that feel like if somebody takes away this, this, the music that you love? You know, and I think that's part of the tragedy of it. Let's listen to one of his bone recordings now. beloved listeners that was uh, Leschenko singing there and as we heard the audio quality on Bone Records wasn't invariably hi-fi but that didn't really matter to the people you interviewed did it? It didn't um, in fact I think you know I spoke to somebody an old guy who when he finally was able to hear the music that he loved as it was meant to sound he didn't really connect with it in the same way. The fact that the sound quality was terrible didn't seem to get in the way. <laughs> you know, well, you met one bloke who described it very charmingly. It was as if you had music playing in one ear <laughs> and someone crumbling biscuits in the other. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Of course, sometimes... Um, um, well, you, the, the thing is with Bone Records, obviously it was an underground culture, so you were never quite sure what you were going to get. I mean, you had, you, you had to beat the dealers on the street... Uh, and you, it wasn't like going into a record store where you could rifle through uh, and make your selection. You know, you're dependent on them, really. So you might ask for rock and roll, you might ask for tango, you might ask for Lushenko, and they'd give you a record. You're never quite sure what it was going to be until you got home. 
and quite often it sounded desperately bad um you know or didn't even play you know that was part of the risk too apart from i have to say about the golden dog gang they took pride uh in making the best possible sounding records and some of their records still sound great tell me about uh, mikhail forevanov Mikhail um, is in his late 80s now. He lives in Moscow. Um, he was an extraordinary person for us to interview because he was a bootlegger when he was 17 and 18. So he told us all about the, the mechanics of it, you know, how you made the records and how you sold them, the dangers, the risks. But what was particularly interesting about Mikhail was that when he was a child, when he was five or six, um, he was in Berlin at the end of the Second World War with his father, who was uh, a colonel in the Soviet army, and his mum. Uh, and climbing over these mountains of rubble one day, they found a stack of jazz records. And he fell in love with jazz at a very, very early age. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that when he was old enough, he left home and came to Moscow and became a bootlegger. And what was wonderful about him was that he took an almost curatorial uh, role he would try and persuade people to listen to often people wanted to buy the stuff that they knew rock around the clock maybe or you know a, a Leshenko record but he would say hey listen there's this woman called Ella Fitzgerald you've got to listen to it you know so he he took pride and pleasure in introducing people to the jazz music that he loved um that was pretty extraordinary you know and it's a sad story isn't it tell us how it played out well, for him, um, he, you know, he ran the risks of being a young person, um, you know, in this big city and selling these records. It was a very risky thing. He told us, you know, how you get to hide them. You get attacked by other, maybe not bootleggers, but certainly other scoundrels, you know, as he would call them, uh, rascals. Um, he was, knives were pulled on him. When he was traveling in the north of the country, um, he got attacked on a bus not because of his records, actually, but because he was wearing a, a Western coat. You know, he, he made enough money that he could dress uh, like an American, um, and he got attacked for that. So it was a pretty brutal business. And he ended up going to prison in the end um, for a couple of years, which was devastating for him because he also happened to be uh, a competition swimmer, and it prevented him from ever being able to compete uh, for the national team and go abroad because he had a criminal record. Stephen, any idea of the scale of this underground operation at its height? I mean, how many of these strange records were made? It's impossible to know. Um, my friend Artemy Trotsky, who's a Russian music journalist, he, he says that there couldn't have been more than a million in total, partly because it's, the process is so uh, tricky, you know, you record one at a time in real time. So it's not a mass production method, it's more like a craft activity. So he reckons less than a million, but, but it's a wild guess because, of course, when they had worn out, and they did wear out pretty quickly after, you know, a dozen plays at the beginning, people would throw them away. So we've got no official stats on, on you know, what, what's left, what we've got now is probably stuff which was hidden uh, or forgotten in attics, you know. There's no way really of knowing how many were made. But Archemi says maybe a million. What came afterwards, which was bootlegs on magnetic tape, he says there were hundreds of millions of them made. When did the era of bone music come to an end? With the death of Stalin? 
No. When Stalin died, um, things got easier. Khrushchev came in, there was the so-called cultural thaw. So uh, just generally speaking, you know, it was a lot easier. Uh, but people carried on making these records. What really finished it off was that after Khrushchev went to the States and he saw what American citizens had, the kind of consumer products, fridges and all this sort of stuff. He came back and famously said, if it's good enough for American citizens, it's good enough for Soviets. Uh, and you could buy a lot more stuff in the shops in the Soviet Union. And one of the things which you can suddenly buy was reel-to-reel tape recorder. And when you've got a reel-to-reel tape recorder, you can make your own bootlegs at home, high quality, 20 minutes aside. There's no need to mess around with these difficult, dirty complicated, flammable uh, records which can only hold three and a half minutes and when you've got to go on the street to buy one. So when that, you know, technological change is always what drives differences in the music industry. So when that happened, there was no need for this culture anymore. So in 1964, almost within a year, maybe two years, it just disappeared. As we speak, Russia is being subjected to another wave of uh, censorship the term Orwellian comes to mind. Mm. So our story remains a very relevant one, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, it's obviously it's tragedy in many, many ways. Um, I've got a lot of Russian friends. A lot of them have become emigres, interestingly. Um, and I think that, you know, what has bone music got to say about the current situation? Well, it, that does say some things. Music is no longer forbidden. The, the, you know, the horse is out of the stable, the cat's out of the bag. You can't really forbid music. And I don't think music has got the power that it once had. But other things are being forbidden all the time. Words are forbidden. You, you know, you can't use the word war. We know this. Um, playwrights and filmmakers are being heavily censored. Um, so censorship is back on the menu frighteningly quickly. For me, the story of bone music does say something. It says that young people in particular will find a way. They always have and they always will. And in our speeded up age, you know, we can just hope that the sort of changes that those original bootleggers helped to bring about can come about again. Beautifully said, Stephen, and on that uplifting note, I thank you for coming on. I've been talking to Stephen Coates, composer, writer, music producer, and his book Bone Music is available now, published by Strange Attractor and MIT Press. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.